Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future, the podcast series where we talk about what is evolving in FSE and what innovations are underway in the world of FSE and a bit beyond. Today, we're going to talk about the proof of sustainable forest management. More specifically, we're going to talk about what tools companies, authorities, and organizations such as FSE can use to prove the product's origin from sustainable forest management. We're going to talk about how these tools can be tied together into a web that can give us indisputable yet cost-effective proof. So we will be zooming into how satellite imagery, so Earth observation, can be combined with forensic testing on the ground. So testing of wood samples, very interesting topic to enlighten me on all of the work that's being done inside and outside FSC within this field. I've invited Scott McQueen, who's the Senior Technology Officer at FSC International, and Jade Saunders, who is the Director of World Forest ID. So let's dive right in. Hi, Jade, and welcome to the podcast. We've covered World Forest ID a couple of times before in this podcast, and you've also been on one of our episodes on tools how to help uh, comply with EUDR. But for new listeners, and just to catch all of us up, Perhaps you can help us set the scene. What is the focus of World Forest ID at the moment? What are you working on? We are primarily building out the tools that we are going to be providing to companies, certification schemes, and hopefully enforcement authorities, particularly under the EU deforestation regulation. So we've spent a lot of time learning about collecting samples and creating data, and now we're turning them into platforms and tools to make them actionable. What are those tools? The themes are about making the process of scientific testing more efficient and more transparent, making it possible for companies or enforcement officials to quickly understand if they have a product that they're concerned about, if they have a species claim that they're concerned about, a location of harvest claim that they that they want to verify, what's possible with the science. There's going to be an interactive widget that you can quickly check what's out there in terms of reference data that's in the, you know, non-proprietary reference data, what techniques will allow you to do what in what geographies. The other bucket of stuff is obviously generating what we're calling origin models, location of harvest models. So before World Forest ID got involved in this space, much of the work of verification was done with very old-fashioned statistical models. We take 20 samples from country A or region A, we make an average, we make assumptions about what's happening there, and um, and, and we're going to give you a result, you know, a green light or a red light, thumbs up, thumbs down. And the consequence of that was that individual techniques like stable isotope ratio analysis or trace element analysis which are intrinsically limited by the amount of variability in the environment, became so therefore they're slightly blunt tools to start with, became even blunter because they were being used in this, in this very kind of 20th century way. And what we've started to do actually with Scott's leadership and, and his geospatial knowledge is to build models which take into account variability at the subnational level. And what that means is that they are starting to allow you to sharpen the lens, sharpen that blunt instrument using modeling and other data sources. 
So that's the other. We're building a platform with um, with support from Scott and his previous uh, employers, <laughs> Esri, to make that accessible to all labs and all users who want to want to test. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. On the first tool that you mentioned, is that like something that you envision would be on your website that everyone could go in and access and say, okay, I might have something that I'm concerned about. Is it possible for me to do scientific testing of this particular product, ABC? Yeah, exactly. It will either be on the website or it will be on a data hub, depending on um, who pays for what. Really interesting. And and how far progressed are you in this? The back end is pretty much built. We're just building the user interface. It should be functional by the end of February. For that, pe- for that piece, it would be earlier if that was the only piece we were building. But uh, there's a few different things going on at the moment that uh, that all need to feed into it. But it's basically just a big spreadsheet with all of the HS codes and the mm-hmm. FSC product codes, a series of columns, which is, can you test this? Have we got species for that? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then it's a, you know, old-fashioned decision-making engine <laughs> in, the, in the Babbage sense. And then, yeah, and then so people will be able to enter an HS code or eventually an FSC product code and then answer a couple of drop-down questions. Do you know what species it is? Do you have a location claim? Do you want verification or at the continental level, the national level, the sub-national level, what's useful to you? And then there'll be a bunch of, it will churn out a bunch of conclusions based on the yes, no, yes, no's. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Can you just, for those who don't know, I've, I have to admit, I've only recently learned what an HS code is. So maybe put a few words to that. There's a huge compendium of HS codes. It's taken care of by the World Customs Organization. It's reviewed every couple of years. And there is a code between four and 10 digits long for pretty much anything that you trade internationally. So anything that consistently passes between countries, across borders, through customs agencies, there's a code. And that's Mm. the code that the EU deforestation regulation and the timber regulation before it used to define the scope of products. It's the code that's used for sanctions. It's the code that's used for different tax regimes. And it's obviously where you might have seen figures saying, you know, this trade is worth, the trade in soy is worth four billion annually, blah, blah, or whatever, that will be derived from the total of all of the trade data linked to the HS codes for the Mm -hmm. various types of soy products. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Really interesting. One thing I can't help but notice is that previously on this podcast, whenever we've talked about World Forest ID, everything has been really focused on getting to a full library of reference samples so that you had something to compare to when you wanted to test a product. It's also been very much focused on stable isotope testing. And it seems that your focus has shifted slightly. I wouldn't say shifted. I'd say probably expanded. We are still collecting samples, absolutely. We're keen to have them sent to us. We're sending people out to collect them. But the reality is that every single sample costs a lot of money. Basically, what we've realized is that this notion of a, you know, a full library of samples is a Herculean task. And um, so that we've got to work out ways, and we are working out ways actually really effectively, of using other data sources to enrich the sample collection and 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 bring down that that kind of herculean ask and in terms of stable isotopes again broadened out it's not that stable isotopes aren't 
really useful. They're just not really granular. Uh, stabilized types shift in a landscape at 100 kilometers, 300 kilometers. That's not a resolution that is going to solve everybody's problems. So what we've been trying to do is look at ways of layering information. And there are layering information in order for it to become more than the sum of its parts. So we got a huge funding from the UK government to develop the reference set necessary to identify Russian conflict timber in trade. And for all of those samples, all the samples that we sent to the lab, we ran them for stabilised tote ratio analysis, but we also ran them for trace element analysis. And what was really interesting was that gave us a data set, a really unique data set, because what we could see was, okay, this is our average like kilometre resolution for stabilised topes on their own. This is our average kilometre resolution for trace element analysis on its own. And this is what happens when you combine them in the model. So you're giving more and more and more information about each point where you have a ground truth sample to train these, these AI models. And what we showed was that rather than, you know, Historically, it's been, has the, has the salesman at the isotope lab been more or less effective than the salesman at the trace element lab? Uh, that's how companies will choose one or the other. But what we're showing is that actually, if you combine information, then you, you get a much more granular, you know, dynamically more granular result, a tighter kilometer resolution mm-hmm. to the location of harvest. For those, perhaps, before we dive deeper into this, for those who are not nerdy about what the difference is between a trace element and a stable isotope? The way I understand it is that there are stable isotopes in the environment, um, usually in the soil, which are sucked up in different ways by plants. And that's really affected by the climate that they're in. For some reason, the way that water flows around and through plants is absolutely critical to the way that they manifest these stabilized type ratios. That's stabilized types. You get like four to five variables for each ground truth data point. Uh, and a ground truth data point is a sample from a tree. And then trace elements are not affected by water so much, but are affected by very small levels of different. Um, elements, metals, whatever, that are in the soil. And -hmm. they are much more dynamic in their environment. So you model them in a slightly different way. They can tell you a slightly different thing. But you can get up to sort of 30, 40, depending on different labs offer a different different level, different set, but whatever, you know, they all measure essentially the same things. And you can measure those in different ways, but essentially the plant will suck them up. There are much, much finer measurements. So they'll suck them up in very small quantities, but they give you a kind of a key to a particular land area. And so Mm -hmm. an example of that will be the whole of Europe is covered in these pockets of chemical fingerprints of the Second World War, the First World War, the different, you know, artillery and whatever that's in in the environment is being absorbed by the trees. And you can start to model those things as well. Mm -hmm. So both are actually essentially models that can tell you where is this piece of timber, for example, likely to come from based on either the hydrogen levels in different elements of the plant or based on the metals in the plant? I always think of it like, um, you know, when you look on a map and obviously the map is flat, but you get lines that tell you, oh, here's a valley, here's a mountain, whatever, these, these lines. Essentially what we're doing is creating 
those kinds of maps to say the, the nitrogen is high here and the oxygen is low here. And mm -hmm. over here, the nitrogen drops, the oxygen is still low, but the carbon comes up. And what you're doing is looking at these, you know, these complex paths. Well, we're not. The computers are, thank God. What the, what the model is being trained on is these complex waves, you know, organic waves across the landscape of the way that the different uh, stabilized state ratios or elements are manifesting themselves in known trees. So we mm -hmm. know that here an oak tree growing here will suck up these trace elements, these stabilized topes. We know that over here it will suck up these. If I've got one ground truth um, sample, you know, in one spot and another ground truth sample 500 kilometers to the east in another spot, what, what we're trying to do is bring other data to bear to understand what those different chemical levels might look like in at 250 kilometers in the middle based mm -hmm. on the, what we know about the soil based on what we know about the climate and um, based on something called gaussian processing okay i dare i dare not ask what that is uh because i because <laughs> i want to bring scott in and scott whenever ga talks about uh, maps and putting things on a map and and sort of mapping this out i'm thinking aha now i I might be able to guess a bit about what it is that you do in in World Forest ID. You're you're on the board of World Forest ID, and you're also the lead of Earth Observation and GIS and FSC. What is the focus of the work that that you're doing? Jay sort of hinted on it that you're trying to to build these maps. It sounds is it is it like you're trying to take all of these stable isotope tests, all of the trace element tests, and and putting them on a map? So let's let's start with what my focus has been here at World Forest Study since I joined. Jade hit on an important point, which was that there's a lot of focus that has been and continues to be, but in the beginning, it was primarily on gathering the samples. And that was the big mm -hmm. key performance indicator. How many samples were we gathering? How many? And so since I came, I mean, one of the first things I said that was, that's great, but what are you doing with the data about those samples? How are we storing it? How are we structuring it? How are we going to make it usable? And what are we going to do with it? Because that is the value of everything that World Forest ID does, is it's all about the data. So what's happened is, you know, Jade continues to focus on gathering the sample data, Perfect. But now we're also building out the back end, which Jade alluded to as well, which is how are we storing the data so we can use it to develop models. And and so for me, you know, uh, my FSC hat, I, I'm the senior technology officer at FSC, and I've worked very closely with Mark Jessel, who's our systems integrity program lead. System integrity is all about what Jade's trying to do. And Jade at a macro scale and what World Forest ID's vision is, is to help with the integrity of the timber industry through these modeling and the samples that are being gathered. FSC has a slightly less ambitious at some level charge with what we're doing with our system integrity because it's primarily focused on our certification. FSC has built FSC Check which is about assessing risk of forest companies. And my whole vision for what we're doing at World Forest ID is that it slides in and is another parameter that we're able to assess a risk in our certification system and use these different tools. So the geography side of it 
is obviously where I get super excited. And when I came in, you know, they had this great data and my immediate thinking on it was, well, we should be using it in a geospatial modeling context. That's the piece of it for me that is really exciting. The data that World Forest ID is gathering is a treasure trove for for training machine learning models. And I, I think that we at World Forest ID are applying it simply to look at providence of wood and compliance to things like the European Union deforestation regulation. But I also think there's a lot of different ways that data could be applied on growth modeling, on understanding health of trees, on trying to plant trees appropriately that are more resilient to climate change because of how they're sucking up those isotopes and the rest of that, those trace elements. So there's there's a lot of use of this data that World Forest ID is, is gathering. And on top of that, a, a further extenuation training, if you will, of their models about the providence of wood. Are you saying that what, what you're hoping and what you're working on and what your ambition level is, is that based on these reference samples, you're able to predict that what a reference sample in the middle or what a product collected in the middle between these reference samples would look like based on AI modeling? Yes, that's what we're doing at the moment. And and critically, we're doing it really at the sub-national level. That's where this is totally different from anything else that anyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. So, and I can't help because Scott Jade mentioned a couple of times that you're enriching this with other data parameters or other data sets. Which kind of data set would be useful there? That's perfect. So imagine this. So you've got, you take a sample and you have a knowledge Mm -hmm. of where it came from. You have the radioisotope or the trace elements that are associated with that general geography of where the tree is coming from. Now you have another sample taken maybe from a port in Egypt. And the people are saying, well, this came from, you know, Finland. And uh, here you go. So we now have a sample that looks similar to a tree or a sample that we took in Finland. And it also looks similar to maybe someplace in Russia. So how do we narrow that test down? So if you start to apply things like moisture content or water content in the soils or a slope aspect or known species ranges or, or, or you can start to add all of these different layers into it, soil types, you start to really be able to pinpoint where that, that sample really did come from versus, oh, it came from Russia or Finland. So, And can you get all of that data out of the timber sample that's picked out of the port in Egypt? That's actually one of the one of the things we're doing with this HS code thing is to go through different HS code categories, look at the production process that they went through because the HS codes are great. They have a code and then they have a descriptor. And in the descriptor, there is actually an awful lot of information about the processing that went, that the product went through. And then you can understand was this heated above 65 degrees, in which case the DNA will have been destroyed, that will have changed the moisture by, you know, X percent. That We're building the widget, but there's also a set of scientific questions that need to be asked about different product types. You know, oh, it's Orient Strand Board. Can you pull enough of the glue and preservatives out of the wood fibers to allow you to measure the 
uh, the stabilized types left in the residue and the trace elements. We don't know that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gone through this in a really in-depth way with plywood because of everything that's going on with birch plywood at the moment, where we had a fantastic commitment from a um, plywood manufacturer in Poland who took a log, sent us a slice of the log, and then ran that log through their plywood mill and sent him all of the component parts and then made it into plywood with the glues and sent him the plywood as well so we can do a full set of tests all the way through and make sure these are the things that you can we know you can measure them off the log but do the measurements stay consistent throughout that production process Mm -hmm. um so yeah in some cases you can and in some cases you can't and we're methodically working our way through those whenever we can get bits and pieces of funding to do it So it sounds like that will then give you a list of, well, these are the parts of a test that will be impacted by all sorts of things. And therefore, for these HS coach, we wouldn't be able to trace it back. But for these, we would easily. Yeah, exactly. And Mm. also you can kind of say, all right, well, we know that formaldehyde does X to the nitrogen molecule or whatever, you know, whatever the kind of, again, and this is where the the kind of AI ability to look for patterns, crunch big, big multiple data sets is really helpful. Sometimes there is an impact from part of the production process, which does change the chemistry, but it changes the chemistry consistently. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you can model for that as well. So an example is uh, one of the one of the projects that we got funded last year working on Ukraine was related to creating the database necessary to identify stolen Ukrainian grain in trade. Mm-hmm. So this was another another of our diversifications. We are focusing on timber, but we're actually doing a bunch of other commodities in quite an interesting way now. But anyway, the grain project, when we met, did all of the isotope measurements, we realized that actually nitrogen is a useless measurement for agri-products because everyone uses it in fertilizer and everyone uses it in different intensities. So you've lost that as a as a natural variable across the landscape because it's been, you know, the the human impact on it is, mm-hmm. has been, it's, it's just impossible to model for. I can't help but think, but if I was to play the devil's advocate on this, if you're doing all this work, you're mapping out, okay, these HS codes we can work with, uh, there we can trace back, these we can't really, and you're putting this in a widget that people can access through your website or through whatever, aren't you also at the same time then giving the bad guys, a treasure map to these are the product types that you could be using if you want to launder wood from somewhere else and place it on the market to make it non-traceable. Yes, to some extent, it's almost like a philosophical dilemma. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work that was done before I came in was focusing on this as a as a kind of stick. It's something to scare people with. As a retailer, you know, if you're at the bottom of the supply chain, tell the people further up that you're testing and that will scare them into doing the right thing. So that's possible. That's one way to approach it. My experience, which is not massive in the industry, but, uh, you know, there's there's also a kind of government-to-government dimension to this with trade rules and things, is if you're bluffing, eventually you're going to be found out. Whatever you're trying to make happen loses credibility. We saw that with the EU timber regulation, right? 
And then it's hard after that to come back from a situation where you've used it as for saber rattling. I know I gave some of those saber rattling presentations when I was working at EFI, but I'm my instinct is that it's better to be honest about what's possible and try to build a system that really does do what you what you want it to do rather than kind of pretend that you're in a better position than you are. One of the things when when Jade said you can approach this from a stick terminology, I, I can't help but wonder that made me think, well, actually, it sounds like the way that you're approaching it, the way that you are thinking about, oh, what else could we be doing is much more of a carrot approach where you're trying to invent. What else could we use this for? Am I right? Yeah, totally. That That's more exciting to me in some ways than the compliance aspect, because we tend to focus on the bad side of this industry. And there's so much more good in the industry and there's so many more good actors. So how do we help those good actors in in the timber industry, the ones certified under FSE or even the ones not certified? How do we help them get more for their product and continue to adapt their crop, if you will, to what's coming out? So I I really feel like with these new compliance tools and some of the work that we're doing around better understanding what isotopes or what trees are actually pulling up out of the earth and into them, I can't even imagine where we can go next. How are we hardening our tree species to deal with climate change? If the growth areas are shifting, how do we make sure that we're getting the right trees in the right places? And then not only that, how do we enable the good actors to have access to this information so they can comply in a cost-effective way to the European Union deforestation regulation and other regulations that are coming down the pipe. I mean, EUDR is kind of a, you know, a, a nice shot out there and it, it's setting a real high benchmark for others to copy. But I, And I think that other nations are going to follow suit. We simply don't have a choice when it comes to the world's forests. The big companies have the wherewithal to prove this and comply with those regulations. The smallholders and the ones that are, in my opinion, more important than the big companies are going to have a hard time. So tools like what we're doing with World Forest ID will help those those smallholders comply and get a high value for their, their product as well. You know, I'm an abundance person. So I, I see that mm-hmm. we can, with this sort of data, we have a lot of opportunity to look at growth modeling, to look at, you know, soil types and moisture. And I just think there's a whole bunch of interesting pieces to this. Jade was talking about the lines, you know, of of isotopes that exist. The analogy she used was one of like, you know, elevation lines on a map. Those are called Mm -hmm. isoscapes. So that idea of an isoscape, you can apply to tree growth as well. So right now, here's all the, the, the tree areas that grow, you know, oak, for example. And we know that. But where are similar areas with those isoscapes of, you know, whether it's minerals in the soil, moisture content or whatever else, where are similar areas that we can project that maybe those trees will be better suited to grow in as we go into this unknown of the climate crisis? Mm, That's really interesting. So are you imagining a world where a company or a a forest owner would contact uh, an organization like World Forest ID and say, I want to optimize the species that I use. Can you help 
analyze which kind of species should I invest in? We have not even <laughs> talked about that so much at World Forest ID, but that's the potential that is in this data of these tree samples. And so I do know from my own deep experience in the timber industry, growth modeling, all of the companies are looking at how we harden our tree species, what tree species are going to be more resilient. I live here in the Pacific Northwest and uh, cedars, Fuji placata are having a really hard time because things are drying out. So where are we going to move those crops to if we can't do them here anymore? And so I, I know that this is some of the work that is happening in the timber industry right now. But if we also had this treasure trove of data from World Forest ID, how could we roll that into our own modeling on where the trees might be better suited or what sort of crop might be better suited uh, for the geography that we have? But I also can't help but, but wanting to ask a bit more, Scott, when you said that this could be a more cost-effective way for smallholders and small forest owners to comply with the European deforestation regulation, can you put a few more words to what you're thinking there? How will this help them? What is it that they would get? So, so let's think about this now. Right now, the European Union deforestation regulation requires anyone who's going to sell their product into the European Union to prove, A, where it came from, and B, that it was not the result of deforestation, and furthermore, that it did not cause forest degradation in the area where it came from. So how are they doing that? How are they going to prove that? If you're a big company, you send people out there and you're taking actual GPS and you're doing your own modeling and all those sorts of things. If you're a small company, what do you do? It's too expensive. You don't have the infrastructure to do those sorts of things. So they tend to get left behind. So now if we said, okay, here's an open access website and it's access to World Forest ID's database and you can put in a tree sample and you can get a result back that says we are 95% certain that that tree sample that you just posted to us came from this general area. And here's what's going on around that general area. That is hugely valuable to those smallholders, those community and family forests. If they find themselves in a position where, okay, now they, it's under question, they have a beginning point, and now, now it's up to whoever to prove or disprove that that beginning point that they got through this modeling context is correct or not correct. So I just feel like with that sort of ability, it can meet 90% of the requirements around proving provenance. Mm. There's also a smallholder market access piece of this, which is really interesting. So we're obviously thinking about the demand side, but on the supply side, there are lots of smallholders who don't fall into scope, producers who don't fall into scope of the EU deforestation regulation. They are not the one clearing customs. They're not the operators. They're not the ones managing the supply chains, processing retail. They're producing, they're outside of the EU, and they are concerned to maintain their market access for legitimate products, allowing them to, to basically bank samples from their forests with us is like the Rolls Royce of market access claim. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're talking about this like this is an open source thing that they can just go ahead and send you samples and then you'll bank them and analyze them. Is that correctly understood? I'm assuming that there's some kind of financial mechanism in here. We will bank them. We will not pay to analyze them unless somebody dumps a mm-hmm. few million on us. Um, I think that at that point, the that's where the costs kick in. And my argument then would be if a... Um, enforcement official or enforcement agency in one of those countries wishes to scrutinize a source claim from one of the broader market recognition, you know, or or kind of uh, responsible producer areas, then it's up to them in the rich nation to pay for the analysis Mm -hmm. of the reference data at that point. I can't help but think that we're already talking about legislation and all of the requirements coming up. Are you already seeing that heavily uh, impacting the kind of things that companies and and authorities are approaching you for? For the cut for the enforcement agencies at the moment, the big thing is that internal resourcing mandates for enforcement, making sure that the right agencies are involved. You know, they are very much on the kind of implementing at the national level. That's the agency preoccupation appropriately at this point, given that they've got a pretty short lead time before they need to start making this thing work. Individuals in the agencies that I've known and worked with for you know a decade or so are definitely interested in what's out there that would enable them to scrutinize objectively geolocation claims. They understand really clearly that that's the most powerful enforcement hook in the regulation for them. There's, you know, Earth observation is interesting, all of the rest of it, but it's it's fantastic. The amount of information about forests, about farms, about, you know, all of the rest of it is wonderful. But if you're facing a misdeclaration about which pixels of all of that wealth of Earth observation to look at, which ones are relevant to you, to the, this shipment, which ones are um, are important. Uh, it, it's it's overwhelming and it, it, there's so much information, it stops being a tool and actually becomes a bit of a burden. So I think they really understand that the first step in all this is verifying the geolocation claim. But can you do that with with what you're building here? I mean, Scott is talking about we are able to get to this generalized location, but the legislation is talking about plot of land. Can you get to that level of granularity? I don't think you'll get to a point where you can say that it was three meters outside of this boundary, this, Mm -hmm. you know, this plot boundary. No, you're not going to get to that. But that's, I mean, the, the, the vast majority of the problems aren't in that anyway. I mean, what we're seeing at the moment is a load of plywood coming in from Asia with legitimate claims about concessions in the Baltics, in uh, in Scandinavia as the, as the source. And they don't, when you take the plywood apart and look at the birch, it doesn't match the, um, the chemistry for those areas. That's not about, you don't need to say it was three meters or 300 meters outside the concession boundary. You're saying for the whole of Finland, when we chop Finland up into 20 by 20 kilometer blocks, not one of them, based on our models, matches the chemistry for this birch veneer. Mm -hmm. I think you can think about it as a real like 
here's my concession and I'm looking, looking, and then think about actually the reality of mixing in the forest products industry, which is way bigger than that. Yeah, which is one of the challenges with the upcoming legislation. That is the entire assumption in that legislation is that things are segregated when in reality they're just absolutely not. But what I'm also hearing you say is that or what it sounds like to me is that that the tools that you're building right now is actually more applicable for the enforcement of the legislation and less so for the proof for companies, for the traders who have to do the diligence checks. That No, not at okay. all. We're working with Kingfisher, IKEA. They've both funded the generation of data. We're, we're helping them with their um, internal compliance checks. They send us the results of measurements for traded products, like Scott said. You know, they take a component part from a plywood mill when they go and do an an audit or a site visit, component parts from furniture. They send them off to the lab. They get the measurements. This is what the oxygen says. This is what the nitrogen says, da-da-da-da-da. And then they run that against our data models. Now, at the moment, we're doing that manually for them. They fund World Forest ID. They've invested in us as as an institution. They've invested in the data. So we're doing those tests manually for them. Uh, Once this platform's live, then they can can do their own comparisons. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's absolutely functional as a tool for industry to start checking. Mm-hmm. So that's the largest challenge is getting the large the, that large input so that you can actually get so many samples. What is then the biggest opportunity in, in your eyes? To know where things in trade came from. I mean, that's incredible, right? We don't know. There's so many questions. Consumers have been increasingly concerned about the footprint of what they're buying, brand reputations for retailers. I remember the day when I first got some email from a fashion company with the word traceability in it. I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> my, my two parts of my life collide. These questions have dogged people for the last 10 years. Quite Traceability is the nub of all of this stuff. We've spent 30 years stripping all the value out of international supply chains, making them more and more and more opaque. Ask no questions, max efficiency at every point, mix whatever needs to be mixed. And the consequence of that is massive environmental degradation, all sorts of unpleasant social consequences that consumers feel really uncomfortable about and governments are really uncomfortable about. And suddenly we have something that will allow you to begin to know. That's crazy. (laughs) That to me, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Scott, in your perspective, because now in this case, you're representing both World Forest ID, but also FSC. And, and you talked earlier about how you work very closely with Mark Jessel, because this whole traceability and knowing that you're sure about the the origin of, of your timber or your forest-based products, traditionally, you wouldn't be able to tell exactly where they came from, but we're looking into tools to how to fix that. And from your perspective, shouldn't that be enough? Do we need this additional AI-based model on top? Uh, yes, we do. For me, when I think about this, this, is, this helps legitimize what's going on in the tender industry. It's opening it up. It's allowing everyone to participate in this idea of transparency. Through that transparency, you're moving the forest owner closer to the consumer, which is really what has to happen. So every one of these tools, World Forest IDs, tools, what we're building with the machine learning model, 
all of that helps legitimize the industry. So for me, this is more as much about a passion for the timber industry as a passion for technology in general. We have to legitimize this industry or we're all in trouble. It just gets worse with the climate crisis that's coming up. What is then the biggest challenge if you are to speak to the biggest challenge? <laughs> The, the, ch the biggest challenge is communicating something that's very complicated. And so how do we boil it down so people understand it and understand the applicability of it and understand that, you know, it's a tool to help them. It's not this black box. And honestly, Jade and I struggle with that all the time. How do we make this not scary and how do we help everyone understand how it works to gain their confidence and also show them things. So for me, when I think about why GIS and the geospatial component is so important is that seeing is believing. You can throw out all these complicated terms and sheets of data and spreadsheets and most people, they can care less. It, it just, it's too much to take in. But you show them a map of where a sample came from, what's around that potential area, and, and suddenly it's just like people can make their own connections through that graphic. Mm -hmm. How much of this is already a reality? How much, much is, of it is aspirations out in the future that you might get in, in half a year or a year? And how much of it is stuff that companies could actually contact Jake tomorrow and say, I want one of those? So, well, as I said, we're, we're running tests for companies right now. And we're running tests for enforcement officials. The limiting factor is the reference material. I had an email this morning saying we've got measurements for a traded sample of teak. We've got an origin claim in the Mekong, which is would be legitimate, but there's very high risk. It could be some from somewhere else in the Mekong, which would not be legitimate. What can you tell us? And what I can tell you is that the Australian government funded a project which runs for another six months to generate the reference data to create a global, or the begin, the beginnings of a global, but certainly a, a Mekong uh, plus some other areas in Southeast Asia, um, Tectona origin model. So come back to me in six months. <laughs> it depends. I can do it for birch. We can do it for oak. We can do it for beech. We can't do it for teak. We can't do it for ipe. We can't do it for kumaru. Not because the technology doesn't exist, not because the model doesn't exist, the platform exists, but because we haven't had the funding to go out, collect the samples and turn them into data. Mm -hmm. And how close are you then to all of these like maps that Scott is talking about? And can, can they actually refer across sample types? Like, can you take, now you have, let's take North America. So you might have some, I don't know, fur and you might have some cedar samples. You might have some different species. Can you take some of the information that you get from each of those samples and say, well, actually we know what this about this area, this about this area. And it doesn't matter as much about which species it is. Both of them can feed into this global map. So there's two questions. Can we do the maps? Yes, we can do the maps. I can, I, we do them. That's what we are doing. When we get sent a CSV file, which has oxygen values, nitrogen values, all of the rest of it, we send them back a map and we do two tests. We do a verification test and we do a determination test. So a verification test is, could this plausibly be from where the origin claim? Mm -hmm. And the determination test is, in all of our reference data for this species, 
So what's the pixel in our uh, model, which we think is the most likely one that this tree grew in? And then we have areas like if you want to be 99% confident, you have a like 100 kilometer ring around that. If you want to be you know, 95, 75%, you can, we can show all of that on maps. And we do in these reports. We're running, oh, I don't know, probably two a week at the moment for different people. They're all being run manually by hand. Uh, we haven't, you know, nothing's formatted. It's not a service provision. We're working towards that. But definitely that exists. By the summer, that will all be, before the summer, the spring, that will all be in the Esri platform and we'll be able to run them much more efficiently. Those maps are available. But it's species-specific. Then Mm -hmm. your second question is about do we have sort of species-agnostic models? Not yet. That's a bigger challenge. At the moment, we're building them individually and what we need to do is start to map a few different ones for one area put them together and say, okay, what can we begin to know? That's the next challenge. But that's, you know, that's a research grant and a PhD probably. (laughs) I don't think that, we're not going to be answering that one by the end of the year. Okay. Scott, I saw you nodding frantically when when I talked about, can we reference stuff across different species? Why were you nodding? Well, Uh, I was nodding because we know that that is one of the things that we need to move into. That's the next level of application in in our modeling here. We have been focused on individual species, but how do we start these sorts of models where we start to see the trending of, you, you talked about a couple of tree species here in the Pacific Northwest. You talked about cedar and you talked about Doug fir. So how are those things changing in their ice escapes? How are they changing? How is their range changing? And maybe even with the trending of those species and the overlapping of their growth areas, is how is that changing too? So that's like a whole nother level beyond what we're doing currently. And we are doing it already with our machine learning on individual species. But the intermixing of species and understanding growth areas is is really exciting to me. So that's why I got excited and started nodding my head too much. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to get you wound up. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I'm a space where you're allowed to dream. <laughs> right. That's also a good segue because we're almost out of time. And, and before we end this conversation, I always want people to dream. So, so Scott, I can allow you to, to continue on your role here. If I'm to come back to you three years into the future, what do you hope is possible by then? Three years into the future. So we're going to have, so Jade, how many samples are we gathering a year? All in, probably about eight to 10,000 a year. And how many samples do we have currently in our database? 35,000. So eight to ten thousand a year. So in what did you say? Three years, Loa. Mm-hmm. We'll have three years. yeah, three years. So we'll have another thirty to fifty, sixty thousand samples. If I'm being all optimistic on stuff. So all of that extra data is going to help us completely refine the model that we have currently. It's just going to continue to get smarter, if you will, and more applicable across tree species. So in three years, we'll have shifted from the academic model that we're using right now to something that's more mainstream, likely based on the Esri platform that will allow access in in a variety of different ways for analysis. 
our model will have been uh, further refined and I imagine challenged several times by that point as well. So we will be able to have the opportunity to prove out the applicability of that model. So all of that said, I feel like in three years time, the actual core mission of what we started at World Forest ID of helping prove the providence of wood, I feel like, well, I'm going to say, I know we will have fulfilled that mission goal in three years. Now, the exciting part is we're also going to understand more ways of applying those tree sample data in different modeling contexts. And I I don't even know where to begin dreaming. Early on, I talked about how we might be able to apply some of that information to growth modeling, to tree species ranges, to, you know, it goes on and on. It's such a treasure trove of data and information with the trees and the isotopes and the trace elements and all the rest of it, the modeling. I don't know where that's going to go, but I, I'm really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Jade, what about you? Do you know where it's going to go? Where do, <laughs> where do you have to it's, be in three um, years? It's very funny thinking, you know, listening to Scott <clears throat> and thinking about what I would say and how you know, it, our answers are completely different. They reflect our backgrounds, and um, but they're also super complementary. So mine is all about how humans will use this. Mine is, Scott's is all about the data, technology in that. And mine is all about, I want us to be in a situation where we have a platform, it's stable, it's growing. We have a, a community of people using it, understanding its value, and really starting to change the way that we think about that black box of supply chains. I, I know it sounds crazy, but the idea of a like, publicly funded public resource which brings transparency to these global public good forests is like that's Valhalla for me so that's my dream that's it thank you to both Date and Scott for patiently answering my many questions and follow-up questions and sharing a bit of their dreams with me There's no doubt that the world is pivoting towards being a more data-driven and a more proof-driven society, and that we as FSC and companies must pivot with it. But from where I sit, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. With all of these new tools coming up, and with the many legislations arising in different regions of the world, and especially within Europe, there's no excuse anymore for not knowing where your raw materials come from, and whether there's still a healthy forest once you've produced it regardless of whether your product is certified or not. Let's hope that Jade is right when she's hoping for true transparency in supply chains through open source data. So it doesn't matter what size your pocket is, whether you can use the tools to verify and prove that your products aren't connected to deforestation. And let's hope that Scott will see his dreams come true when he hopes that this will just be the beginning of a new world where the data harvested through samples can help us identify how we might optimize our forests to help us combat climate change. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations within FSC in the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future.